0: But it's National Ladies' Day in Canada, and I think maybe all over the world. I don't know how other countries celebrate it, actually. Um, But one one of the interesting things is that as a pastor, I've seen this massive shift from kind of Mother's Day being this really joyful day to kind of a day that actually seems to be a little more exclusive than preferred. And what I mean by that is that Mother's Day is probably one of those days that if you're not a mother and you're actually struggling through this, this is one of your worst days. This is like uh, trying to celebrate Christmas Day when that day is the day that someone has passed away for you. It's, you have this bitter sweetness to it. Now, what we don't want to say is we don't want to celebrate mothers like, mothers, you know, you have your celebration, so we're just going to concentrate on those who are in pain. What I simply want to say this morning is we have both right here amongst us. We have some mothers, this is a great day. This is the day your kids actually try to listen to you just for, just for an afternoon. But this may also be a day where you say your infertility issues are just rearing its ugly head. Or you have a painful experience with your own mom. Or your mom has passed away and today is a painful day. Or you're struggling with your children all of these things could be part of today. And so I actually want all women to stand. I'm just going to pray for all women, if you wouldn't mind. I want to pray and bless all women. So if you're a woman this morning, I'd ask you if you'd stand. We are to pray a blessing upon you. And for those men that are seated, I, I ask if you're comfortable with this, just put your hands out as a way of saying, I agree with this prayer. Jesus You see all the women here this morning. You know their stories. And just like there are lots of stories in your word of women who had great success when it came to bearing children, there were also many women who had great failure when it came to bearing children. Great pain. Some, this summarized their whole life was the pain of lack of motherhood. And so, Jesus, you know there's lots of pain in this room, potentially. There's infertility, Jesus. There's babies that we're not sure how, they'll, how healthy they'll be when they're born. There's babies yet to be born, Jesus. And we ask that you would comfort those women today, those who are perhaps in some pain about this. They don't have peace They don't have comfort. They have struggle. Jesus, would you see that struggle and be merciful to them? Would you show up to them? Jesus, we also want to recognize this morning that there's great joy. You have multiplied our church via the baby root. And it's remarkable. You have provided our church with unbelievable stories of children that that were prayed for, were prayed over, that we're deeply desired. And Jesus, we give you the glory for that. And we thank you for that. We, Jesus, would you help remind us that this is something that affects all of us, not simply the women in the room. And so we give you all the honor and the glory for what we're asking you to do and for what you have done already, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Thanks, you may be seated. You want to turn in your Bibles to deuteronomy chapter ten deuteronomy chapter ten it 's the fifth book of the Bible and uh, so it's somewhere in about right, right about there in your Bible if you don't have a Bible this morning, would you put up your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible and if that's your first Bible uh, go ahead. did you see that usher is there uh, there's There's some people, if if that's your first Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible because we use it every week here at Urban Grace. Um, If it's not your first Bible, you just, it's a loner, um, then it's as a library. Please return it at the end of the service so that someone else can use it next week. Um, We're in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And as we begin, um, I want to talk, we're talking about this issue of justice and that God is just. And uh, I want to begin by just talking about something that may or may not be familiar with you. The next slide shows uh, something that you probably know about. Rob, you're going to have to help me out there today. What's that? DNA strand. DNA strand. Pretty good, eh? I drew that myself. No, I didn't. DNA. I don't know a lot about DNA, but here's how this subject comes up in our family. We don't. We're not scientists. We're more the word people. Um, we're not math or science, we're like good times people. Um, So this doesn't come up a lot, but I'll tell you what does come up. (laughs) True story, right? What does come up a lot is when you see kind of the effects of DNA in your family. It's very, very fascinating. I have the privilege of two beautiful girls in my family, so I always say I play for Team Estrogen, like there's a lot of girl in my family. And what's interesting though, and in spite of there's a lot of girl in my family, uh, there's this strange mix of me and my wife, Leslie, in my children. And sometimes it, they're like side by side and it's crazy. I had this in my Bible. I was like, okay, here's a great example. Okay, this is from my youngest Eve. She's seven years old. And so it's like, this is, this is my DNA and my wife's DNA in like one little person. Who's a woman? So the first is, Dad, I love you, of course. And it starts out with, you fill my heart with love. Whose DNA do you think that is? Right? It's not mine. I'll give you a hint. Right? That's, that she's just this cuddly little lovey person. Okay? Whose DNA do you think this is? If you weren't here, I wouldn't be alive. That's the kind of like super logical, reasonable uh, DNA that, that I kind of bring. Not that my wife's not logical or reasonable. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that seems to be like the DNA and it shows up in your children. And I tell you, it, it, it is funny when you see it. Uh, there's, there's nothing like kind of seeing that. Now, here's what's interesting is that when we become children of God, did you know that his DNA begins to rub off on us? that that's his plan for our life, that Jesus doesn't just want to provide us with kind of a religion, but actually he wants to change our heart so that he begins to put his DNA inside of our heart so that when we act, he looks down and says, that's me coming out in my people. Now we're in a series called The Father God, and some of you are like, I don't understand what this has to do with anything. But Our text this morning is, I think, a little bit unique from the ones we have been looking at for the past uh, three weeks in particular, in that there's actually quite a bit of application. If you're new to Urban Grace, what we've been doing is kind of going through the Father God series and looking at attributes of God the Father, And, and it's interesting that in some of these texts that we've been looking at, we've been looking at Bible texts that talk about God the Father, and with some of them, there isn't a lot of application. It's like God is holy. Yeah, we need to know that. God is merciful. Yeah, and we can be merciful as a result of that. Yeah, but high on what God is and who God is. This one's interesting because this text in particular, when God talks about being just, he actually does it in a unique way. He said, here's what I expect of you, that you do these things. But he said, I'm not going to ask you to do things that are not connected to my DNA. So go and do these things. So you see this interesting thing that happens in the passage where where it's just kind of this summary passage in which God is saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's who I am. Here's what I want you to do. And he's connecting what we are called to do as his children in reflecting his DNA to the world. And so let's go through the text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. I'm going to read this to you. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, excuse me, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. He's speaking to Israel. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is God's word for us. So this morning we're going to go through basically and talk about two things. And our two things are, are first of all this inner reality of God actually wanting change on the inside of our hearts and then that moving out and, and, and like, like him implanting this DNA in our hearts, this, this DNA then moving outward into activity. And so there is some action, actionable items for the neatniks amongst us for today. But we have to get a sense of, of where this text is at. Now, if you were here last week, Um, and if you weren't here, I'll explain this for us, Uh, this particular text, although it's not in the same book of the Bible, chronologically kind of picks up where last week's text ended. So in other words, if you notice, there's some similarities between uh, chapter um, chapter 9 and chapter 10, that are similar to the story in Exodus. And what's happening in Deuteronomy is is Moses, who we think is the author or the preacher, he's preaching a sermon, he's re-preaching. He's recycling an old sermon so that people kind of capture the vision. And this is his vision sermon of, of like, this is what God wants for us. This, is, this, this summarizes God's activity amongst us. That's why he begins by saying, and now Israel, what does the Lord require? Okay, now what are we going to do? What's our vision moving forward in the desert? What does the Lord require of you but to love the Lord your God with all your heart? to walk in his ways, to love him, to love him, to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord. It's interesting because some of us have this idea that God set in motion kind of his law and said, now go and do it. But he never really does that without first saying who he is and then saying, if you love me, this is what will happen. I love that about our God. Before he requires things of us, he tells us what he has done for us and then says this is something that has to go deep in our hearts and if it doesn't grab our hearts, we will never be moved to do activity. Some of you, that's not the way you function in your spiritual lives. It's the backwards route. Some of you don't really find yourself loving God. You just want to do what he says because you want to get him off your back. I know that's my natural inclination is it, to just think about, okay, I've I, I got to make sure I don't sin because if I sin, then God gets mad at me and if he gets mad at me, then, and, then I, I, I'm off track and I can't do what he wants me to do. I can't hear him properly. That's kind of my natural way that I think. And I need the text of scripture to regularly say to me over and over and over again, no, everything that God asks us to do is first of all, because of what he has done. That's why it actually says the very first thing in the the text. He said, look at what I've done for you. Even when he delivers the ten words, you would know them as the ten commandments. The first commandment, people always say, is, oh, don't put any other gods before me. That's not the first commandment. The first commandment is, God saved us from Egypt. (laughs) This is what God has done. Now here's what you are to do. Why? Because when you love someone, you want to you serve them. If you said, today's Mother's Day, right? So if I told my wife, oh, I love you, honey, but this afternoon, can you do this and this and this and this and this for me? You would say, that's not really loving, Trev. If I say I love, there's action that always follows that. And this is what God is saying. If you think Christianity is just God telling you to do a bunch of things, you've misheard Christianity terribly. The gospel is not about what we do for God, but what if God has first done for us. And because we love God and what He has done for us, we're moved to action. That's why it's all about the heart and the soul. That may not make sense for you, but the heart and the soul encapsulated every sort of, of ac- action for an ancient Near Eastern person. The heart and the soul were like the emotional and intellectual decision-making center. Now we would say, oh, it's all in the brain. It's not true. Those people who cheer at the saddle dome are not just intellectually going, that is the team that is from the country that I'm from in the city where I'm from. There's emotion there. There's heart, There's soul. I read an article once, there's no proof there's a soul. I was like, well, you clearly don't have one. I get that. (laughs) You raise kids, you're like, what, no soul? There's something about people that there's a decision-making center that includes our brains. We can logically think through things. Our will, like we do something with it. Our emotions... And God is saying, if this isn't where I reach, then I'm not finished. It's interesting, this this whole issue. Um, I'll get to it in a bit. The next part is he said he's promised to guide and to care for his people. You see, God didn't just kind of say, well, whoever wants to follow me, follow me. He pursued them. He chose them. I know we hate those kind of words. What? God was actually in control? I was in a conference this last week with a bunch of Christians and one of the presenters actually said, do I dare say that God ordained and planned out that we could be here? I was like, we're afraid to say God planned. I think it's all over the Bible. How he planned, okay, let's, let's talk through this. But that he chose people and he pursued them. I mean, you don't pursue someone unless you have a plan, right? You don't just accidentally end up in a dating relationship and 45 years of marriage. That doesn't happen by accident. That's a pursuit. Yeah, good word. You don't happen to have kids who listen to you. Believe me, this does not happen by accident. In fact, many times it doesn't happen in spite of the fact that you work terribly hard at telling your kids what they should do. God pursued people. He chose them. He went after them. He said, I'm going to make a people for myself. That's what Moses is trying to recount in his sermon. And maybe he's even more passionate than I am. But what does he say about them? I promised that I would provide for you. I promise that I would make you into a people. I would multiply you. I would help you bear children as a community. And then you see this word, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Everyone's favorite verse, right? Like that shows up on a lot of coffee cups. Right, If you don't know what circumcision is here, I've got a picture for us next. Just kidding. <laughs> you should have seen the look on your faces. Some of you are like, oh dear Jesus, do not. No, I won't show you a picture of circumcision. It's very graphic, makes us very uncomfortable. I don't know, many preachers are like, yeah, I'd love to preach on circumcision on Mother's Day. That sounds like fun. Circumcision is a medical act of skin removal. I'll say it tactfully like that, okay? Yeah, so it's exactly how all guys respond to that. <laughs> we laugh when we're nervous, but this is this is what's interesting. This doesn't mean much to you, but this meant a lot to ancient Hebrews. And here's why is that when God made this promise to a man by the name of Abraham, he said, I will multiply you. I will make you into a nation of people. Do you know how multiplication of people happens? Do you have an idea? Okay, are we old enough to say we've got an idea? Now imagine a sign that associated with the idea of multiplication. God basically said, you won't be able to multiply without seeing the sign of the covenant promise that I gave to you. That actually makes circumcision reasonable a little bit, doesn't it? Like there's not, you, you can't avoid it if you're gonna multiply. You're gonna see it. Everyone. Doesn't matter. And God says, I want you to see that I made a promise to you that I will multiply and build you into a people who love me in their hearts. I love that. It kind of takes the weirdness of circumcision out of it. It's like, well, that actually makes somewhat sense. So there's actually a sense of almost pride within the people. And, and Moses has a weird kind of experience with this because Moses had forgot that was a sign. And there's a very funny story in Genesis where his wife calls him out on it. Doesn't call him to like strip down, but calls him out on it. Basically says, you know this is the promise, Moses. She knows that Moses' son's not circumcised, that although Moses is talking at God's covenant, he's not obeying God in his heart. There's something wrong. Now I get get the scare of it for sure. But she literally throws the foreskin at his feet says, I hope this is what God does with you. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't scare you. I don't know what would. Can you imagine one day you're working on your office and your wife throws your son's foreskin on the floor and says, what are you going to do? I'm, you can laugh. This is uncomfortable, I know. What an image. What, what, what was she saying? Don't forget the covenant of God, the promise of God to multiply. Now, here's what's cool is that God does it. He doesn't say, So go get circumcised. I'm, I'm happy for the new covenant. Amen? New covenant says circumcision is no longer required to follow God. Men say amen. Amen. But the image never leaves the Bible. In fact, what's interesting is you see it show up in the New Testament a lot. It says, Circumcise your hearts. Circumcision was a way of saying we are set apart. We are God's covenant, promised people. We have God's DNA within us. Look it. We have God's DNA. We're His chosen people. We're followers of God. And the New Testament actually says this. This is what has to happen in your heart. You have to have almost like a medical procedure in your heart that basically says you need a brand new heart. You need to cut off what's not supposed to be there. I know it's graphic. I get that. But these, this is not, I'm making, I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. And he says, circumcise your hearts, therefore. And later on in Deuteronomy, he says, God will circumcise your hearts. God will do a medical procedure on your heart. And I believe that for some of us, this is, is about as far as it goes. We've never really had this done in our hearts. We've come to church, we've done all the right things, we've given to our church, we've served in our church, but something is missing. We're not growing, we are not in love with God. We don't love what he's done for us. We don't see the gospel as good news. We see it as the knowing part of the sermon where Trev simply or Matt repeats themselves week in and week out. You know what needs to happen? Circumcision. Something in your heart needs to change. Change. And you need to see the grace of Jesus. You need to see the glory of God in Jesus. You need to hear how much you've been forgiven of. You need to hear what it costs for you and I to have a relationship with the God who decided to choose us. We all need it. And some of us need regular circumcision all the time. I know I do. I'm talking about the heart here, okay? So good for us. He says, I'm in control. The ultimate reality. I'm the God of gods. I'm the Lord of lords. That's the supreme. Like, you don't say that about someone who's subservient. That's why when we talk about Jesus, we talk about his king. Sometimes we say he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All the kings are here. He's this kind of king. All the lords or the sovereigns are here. He's this kind of sovereign. The heavens are his. And then it says some interesting things. It says he's not partial and takes no bribe. It's really one of the first times we start to see this show up. So I had to lay the ground for that because the justice of God, that God is just, comes in that kind of a context. It talks about how great he is, and then it says he... He knows how to judge. He knows how to distinguish between right and wrong. He knows what right and wrong is. I think this is so important for us to get in our culture. Plus, it's very difficult for us in our culture because we live in a culture where the moral compass moves around. Moral magnetic north seems to change all the time in our culture. You ever notice that? How what's right for one person isn't what's right for another person? It says God doesn't change in his moral magnetic compass. It's true north all the time. Except no bribe. You need to hear this as no amount of prayers changes God's mind. You can't just change God's mind because you pray. He's not a cosmic slot machine where you just put the prayer quarters in, pull the slot, and he does what he wants. That's why we pray for rain this morning. We pray that God would bring rain, but it's in his hands. Ultimately. We're at his disposal. We're at his mercy. That's why this morning I pray, God, in your mercy, send rain. Not because we deserve it. Not because we earned it. Not because we can get it by our moral good works or our holiness. Or our, we receive it as an act of God's mercy. He takes no bribe. You can't sway him because you think you're more important than someone else. You ever met someone who could take a bribe? I I haven't. I haven't tried, to be honest. I'm not saying that like out of moral highness. I'm just saying like, we don't live in a country where this is normal. I know lots of countries around the world. It's very common for law enforcement to take bribes. The people that should have a straight, true north moral compass, they'll waver if given the right amount of money. Maybe we don't have that kind of, but do you tend to treat those around you that are in a worse position than you worse than those who can help you? Our God's not like this. So important for us to get. He's not just holy. He's not just merciful. He's not just in control. He is just. He executes justice on the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I want to talk about this for a second. The word justice is Hebrew, mishpat. It occurs over 200 times in the Bible. Very important to God. And many times it's, it's associated deeply with whether or not people actually love God. In other words, sometimes God looks at whole cultures and sees injustice and basically said, you don't obey me, you don't love me. Wow, what a statement. You know, he doesn't say that about holiness. He doesn't look at people and say, you're not very holy, that means you don't love me. But he does about justice. It's interesting. He looks at whole cultures. He looks at people who say they love him and he watches their actions and says, these don't match up. I put my DNA in you. I execute justice. I care for the fatherless. I care for the widow. I care for the orphan and you don't. What's wrong with your heart? You clearly don't understand who I am. What a statement in our culture. The sojourner is essentially the landed immigrant. They're the people who don't really have a home. They don't kind of have rights. They don't own land. But they're kind of semi-permanent residents. We don't call them landed immigrants anymore. What do we call them? Anyone? Yeah? Refugees. That's a good word. Used to call them legal aliens. <laughs> Meaning they had some sort of status, but they didn't really have the rights of a full person. Born and raised. Refugees, probably even better description. Fatherless. What does this mean? just kind of bastard children. No, it means someone who doesn't have a hope for their future. Remember, this is a culture where things rose and fall on the husbands and the fathers. Like economically. This is why someone in the widow is basically put in the same sort of context. So The widow, someone who doesn't have a husband. Fatherless, someone who doesn't have a dad. Sojourner, someone who doesn't have inheritance in the country. The vulnerable people of society. The people who can't fend for themselves. This is really important because this is what God says, I take care of them. I look after them. It's my job. I execute justice. I'm in charge of this, knowing who deserves what and who gets what. And we see his heart here. We see that his heart is for these people. The definition of just means behaving according to what is morally right and fair. There are all kinds of Old Testament laws, laws that are not necessarily binding to us those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of principles here that still stand. When you're reading through the Old Testament, the Old Testament being these kinds of words, what you will hear a lot is, you know, for these particular people, do this. He says, people need to sacrifice. But if you're out of money, here's what you can sacrifice. If you don't have kind of a, a defense lawyer, here's a city you can live in while you figure out things. There's a lot of these rules and principles that I think are very helpful for us. I mean, he put laws in place that protected the weak and the vulnerable of society. Things that almost in every culture are the responsibility of any good king. What we would call our government these days. God takes ultimate responsibility for. But here's what's interesting, and this is where we get into some of the application. Is that this understanding of who God is and what he has done needs to turn into outward action or it really hasn't sunk in. And so next, Rob, we're already in point number two, sorry. Outer action. The first half of the text urges Israel that their love of God has to be more than simply an external commitment. But here's where the action begins to show up again. And he says, here's why I want you to take care of those kind of people. You were those kind of people. You were in Egypt. You know what this is like. I mean, for those of you who have ever gone without a paycheck and not a place to live, there's something that happens to your compassion level for those who are in that kind of moment. When you feel vulnerable and there's nowhere left to turn and you've looked to the government for help and they can't help you in your situation... There's a level of compassion in your heart for those who are in a similar position. And this is what Jesus says. This is what God says. Love the immigrant, the refugee. You were a refugee. How can you not love the refugees when you've been one? How can you not know what this is like? How can you not remember how this goes? So you shall fear the Lord your God. You serve him. Hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He's the one who you give credit to. He's your God who has done great and terrifying things that you have seen. You watched how God executed justice for you. How can you not do this for others? I think the same principle applies for us. That this is what's unique about this particular text and this is what is unique, I think, for us even in this time period is that we live in a world where this isn't really the test of our faith. I mean, we're so individualized in our culture that we never think of the test of our faith as caring for the vulnerable in our society. I'll put it this way. If Jesus looked in my life and in your life and said, I am going to monitor your spiritual life based upon how you care for the weak and vulnerable in society, what grade would he give you? What would that look like? Most of my life and most of the time, I'm getting an F that there's nothing that shows me how weak my love for God is than those moments. This is why I said we need radical surgery. As a church family, we've got to figure out how to do this. We've got to talk about what this means in our city groups. We've got to find ways of helping our city of looking after the parts that our government will not look after and actually can't. Because in some ways of the separation of church and state. And you know what I would say? The government isn't supposed to take care of us. We are. God gave this world a church that could offer things that a government or a king or someone who was committed to justice could never do. The government can't make you a good neighbor and forgive a neighbor who repeatedly says things to you because he's got mental illness or something like that. The government can't simply help those, can't befriend a street person. They can provide a meal. They can give them opportunity and say there's a bed for you. But in my neighborhood, I don't think homelessness is really the issue. Mental illness is. These are men and women who have deep addictions to things that they don't know how to break and they need friends, not the government. What if this was our litmus test of our love for God? Now, I'm not saying we can earn God's love and earn God's favor by just getting involved in what we would call things like social justice. I, I, honestly, I don't like that phrase, social justice. And the reason why is it's not just social and it's not just justice. I would say biblical justice or justice that comes out of a heart that loves God. Because you know what? We have a government that's actually quite committed to justice, but they do not have the changed heart for God. And that's not their motivation. But as a church, can't it be? Go back to this question. Are you moved by this God? Has your heart been changed by this God? The whole gospel is offered to people who are in vulnerable positions. You know, I used to hear when I was a kid a phrase that actually is not just not biblical. I think in some ways it's satanic. It's this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard it? You ever heard anyone say, that's, that's Bible. No, it's not. That is as anti-gospel as it gets. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, why are you hanging out with sinners? Why are you hanging out with vulnerable people? Jesus said, I didn't come for you if you don't want me. I came for the sinners. Those without hope. Those with nowhere left to turn. Those with no resources left on the table. I came for the widow and the orphan. He tells stories of feasts where those who deserve to come because they've done well with their lives, he invites them to the banquet and they won't come because they're too busy. And he says, go out and find who? The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the immigrant. I'm going to fill my table up with these people. The problem is, it would make a really uncomfortable church service, wouldn't it? It would make a really uncomfortable lifestyle, wouldn't it? I'll tell you this I never get opportunities to help people when it's really convenient. I get the opportunity to help people when I'm busy and on my way home and I really can't take the time right now. That's when I get great opportunity. My opportunity for mission at Safeway comes when I've got 30 seconds and I have to get home because dinner's about and everyone's depending on me and someone wants to talk who I know is vulnerable. That's when it comes. This stuff will not be convenient for us in any way, shape, or form. It's not all nice and neat like, oh, you know, Red Cross has set up money. We can donate. All we have to do is text. That's not ultimately how a lot of this happens. This happens because you have a two-year waiting list for someone to get help, and you're helping that family for two long, exhausting years that's when those opportunities come. You know, there's movies about this sort of thing that's talking about, oh, aren't we great as humans? We just have this DNA within us that wants to help another. You know what the really popular one is? The Martian. Haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil it. I'm halfway through because I watch it for free on WestJet for two flights and I only got halfway through, okay? But at the very beginning... He says, you know, there's, in any culture, there's this desire to help, yeah, but not with the same kind of motivation as the gospel gives us. People help for what reason? To make themselves look good, to make themselves feel better. Because they should. How does that work, by the way? When you tell someone to do something because they should, does that move you? It's like stand. Stand up and worship Jesus because you should doesn't do anything. We who have been changed by Jesus have an opportunity to display our motivation because we are the orphan. We are the widow. We are the refugee who God has specifically targeted and said, I want to help those people. What would this look like if this began to be part of our life? Well, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7 says this challenge. It's a bunch of people who are doing a lot of religious things, okay? Fasting was a way of connecting with God. These were the super spiritual people. They fasted. They didn't eat for a while so that they could feel closer to God. And here's what God said about them. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. There were people who were fasting who were holding people hostage in slavery or in contract work, making them work off their debt so that they didn't, weren't even able to spend time with their families. They were ultimately in slavery and yet they were saying, God, how long do you want me to fast? And God said, I don't want your fast. I want you to release this person from slavery. What would that look like if our business mindset began to change so that we didn't choose the job that we chose because we made a lot of money to give away, we chose the job we chose because it was right. And the way that we formed our business, perhaps we could make more money at it if we charged more or paid our employees less, but we decided people need to be paid rightly whether they're immigrant or not and we took a little less for ourselves i think that's the kind of stuff that would start happening what if you used your job the skills that jesus had given you not to get your health yourself ahead in this world but to get others ahead what if you chose where you lived, not for what would make you comfortable, but for what would make you helpful to your city? I tell you, this would radically change our church. If we began thinking about the God who has given us a DNA that said, you were a refugee. You were homeless. You had no dad, no inheritance. Show others. Show others. I read this last as we close. It's a passage from a writer, a historian, who traced the history of Christianity in the first number of centuries. And how Christianity grew. It's where I got most of the information I got about how how actually the first missionaries targeted cities. Because that's where all the people congregated. But what's interesting is how it moved forward. Not just where, but how it moved forward. It's a fascinating study. And what Rodney Stark says basically is Christianity moved forward. Because they started to become like the welfare system of the entire world. That's how Christianity moved forward. In those days and age, there was disease in cities. And there was all kinds of outbreak and epidemics. And what was fascinating was that that when epidemics came on, people ran for their lives out of the cities to get away from certain death. And guess who stayed behind to care for the sick and the poor? Christians. And Christianity blew up and became the dominant religion in a little under 200 years. It went from 70 people to half of the population of the world in under 300 years. Why? It moved through movements of people who had been changed in their heart by the love and grace of God to the point where they began to ignore their own needs and to care for the widow and the orphan. And he writes, The power of Christianity lay not in its promise of otherworldly compensations for suffering in this life, as so has often been proposed. No, the crucial change that took place in the third century was the rapidly spreading awareness of a faith that delivered potent antidotes to life's miseries here and now. The truly revolutionary aspect of Christianity lay in its moral imperatives, such as love one's neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. These were not just slogans. Members did nurse the sick, even during epidemics. They did support orphans, widows, the elderly, and the poor. They did concern themselves with the lots of slaves. In short, Christians created a miniature welfare state in an empire which, for the most part, lacked social services. Wow. What if that's what God's waiting for? I don't know about you, I want to see Jesus take over our city. I'm tired of the world telling me of the kind of hopes for life. I watch enough TV to know that it's basically garbage that I'm being fed day in and day out. But what if Jesus taking over this city was not simply people that gathered and proclaimed the gospel, that people Monday through Saturday were committed to the otherliness of our church. And our heart broke, not just for the homeless people, but for the single mom who has no resources or makes just enough to qualify not for welfare or for help and has three crazy bratty kids at home that she doesn't know what to do with. That houses started to open up for people who are really in a situation where they couldn't provide for themselves. That we began to do hospitality in a way that was so unique that our city would actually have to start to pay attention and say, I I may not believe what those people believe, but there is something that drives them that is totally otherworldly. Do not hear this as a guilt trip. Hear this as a call to action. To say what's most important. Did you remember? If we're not changed first by the grace and love of Jesus, this will never happen. And if we try to do this without being changed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ, what will it be? Just morality. Selfish morality. But if we are changed by the love and grace of Jesus, if we recognize that we are orphans, we are widows, we are immigrants and refugees, When this begins to bleed out of us, what will happen? Revival. That's what will happen. I'll call the band up. We celebrate something every week. It's called the Lord's table, the Lord's supper if you're brand new. Maybe it's the Eucharist to you. Maybe that's what you know it as. We celebrate it every week because I don't think we can celebrate it enough, to be honest. Because we need to be moved by the love and grace of Jesus. And here's how I want you to hear this symbol. I don't want you simply to see this as bread and wine or gluten-free bread and juice, a little snack before we sing. I want you to see this as your Savior poured his life out for you. He was uncomfortable for you. He was homeless for you. He didn't have a family for you so that you could have one. He left the comfort of his own home to come to earth so that he could provide us with an eternal home. God was homeless for a season so that he could reach those of us who were looking for the eternal home. How can we not simply respond in worship, friends? How can we not just respond in love? And so as we sing, let's celebrate together the father for the fatherless, husband for the widow, the permanent home for the refugee.